Hi, I'm Sarah Wheeler, the host of Housing News, and today we're interviewing Michael Bright, the CEO of the Structured Finance Association, in a wide-ranging interview that talks about market liquidity, GSC reform, the end of LIBOR, lessons learned from the last financial crisis, and even more. You're going to love it. So thanks for joining us. Hi, Housing News listeners. Welcome back. This is Alcina Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. You just heard from our host, Sarah Wheeler, but before we dive into the episode, here's a quick word from our sponsor. For over 60 years, the private mortgage insurance industry has helped more than 33 million low to moderate income borrowers access affordable, low down payment home financing. This year, the private MI industry will continue to bridge the down payment gap for millions of more Americans and serve as the best option for low down payment borrowers. Learn more at www.usmi.org. Thank you for listening, and here's episode eight of season five of the Housing News Podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, with the latest episode of our Housing News Podcast. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Michael Bright, the CEO of the Structured Finance Association, the nation's leading trade group for the securitization industry. Michael previously served as Acting President of Ginny May, Director at the Milken Institute's Center for Financial Markets, Senior Advisor to the U.S. Senate Banking Committee, Vice President of BlackRock's Financial Advisory Unit, and Senior Vice President at Penny Mac, among other roles in the private sector. So, Michael, welcome to Housing News. Sarah, thank you for having me. Great to be here. Uh, we're thrilled to have you. Uh, so the first thing we start out, we, we really want to give people a sense of, of who our speakers are. And one of the things we found is like no one gets into this industry in the same way. So we'd love to ask you, you know, how did you start? How did you start your housing career? Oh, boy. Um, a long time ago. A long, long time ago. And got too far <laughs> away. Um, no, um, interesting question. So I, I was probably, I guess, 23 years old, and I was going to graduate school in DC, a place called SICE. It's Johns Hopkins Advanced, Inter- it's an international studies school. And um, boy, I, I was casting a wide net, honestly. I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life whatsoever, but I knew certain things that I liked. I knew I liked finance, and I liked markets, and I liked public policy. And so I interviewed for a couple of jobs on the Hill. I, inter- I was working at a think tank, um, they gave me this job offer to, to, you know, be like a research assistant. None of the DC jobs paid anything like what was enough to support just like a, you know, a studio apartment in town. I, I still don't know how a lot of the 20 somethings do it when they try and go into public policy. So I was also looking into finance and this was 2002. So the dot-com bubble had just happened. 9-11 had just happened and New York wasn't hiring anybody. So that so like the whole idea of going to New York to do finance um, wasn't panning out. Staying in DC was, there was an option, but it didn't pay anything. And randomly, you know, got connected with Countrywide with some folks out in the West Coast um, and didn't know much about the company, didn't know that much about mortgage-backed securities or anything. But I flew out and the weather was beautiful and the building was outstanding. And I walk into the trading desk, which they had just remodeled. And like my eyes lit up and I'm like, holy, you know, there are all these people with all the, the screens and the TVs everywhere and yelling back and forth. And it was like straight out of liar's poker. Um, and it was nice weather and the parking lot was filled with nice cars. And, and I don't know, something went off of me and I was like, this looks like a lot of fun and I can learn a lot. So um, ended up moving to the West Coast and I worked on the trading desk there. 
And I did learn a lot. Um, some lessons that were great, like how these markets work and how mortgage-backed securities work and how capital markets work. And then some lessons that were painful to learn, like how greed can in infect people's thinking, you know, watching watching some folks realize that this couldn't last, but some managers who wouldn't accept that, you know, the housing prices couldn't keep going up, watching the company basically eat itself uh, from the inside with degradation of sort of lending standards and some, and, and, you know, the, and really the, the company was tearing itself apart. There was a group of folks that were saying this can't go on. And there was a group of folks and those folks, a lot of them ended up at Penny Mac, to be honest. And then a group of folks that were kind of like, no, that's not true. Let's just keep going. Um, so the, so it got really ugly and, and gross at the end, but, um, I tried the whole time to keep my head down and just learn the technicals as much as I could. Um, and I will say that as painful as 07 and 08 were, um, it was like, 20 years of learning over the course of eight months, just watching the markets come unglued, watching the repo markets come undone, watching the treasury markets um, disappear. I mean, it was really scary that you couldn't trade treasuries for a while in 08. Um, so anyway, a um, lot of lessons, I guess, learned some good, some bad. And then ultimately, right after the financial crisis, I moved to DC and I've been here for 12 years, 13 years now ever since, and trying to dedicate myself to having the you know, harnessing the good of capital markets and what it does, um, you know, to, to grow the economy while avoiding the mistakes of the past and, and the sort of groupthink and the greed and the, um, you know, hold everybody going one direction and not and losing their minds. So uh, DC is a place that offers you the opportunity to kind of help nudge public policy um, for the good. And it's been, a, it's been a really fun journey. And so as now I'm at SFA and it's great, it's a great spot. Uh, that's such a fascinating time to uh, to be at Countrywide and to really see that. I mean, you couldn't couldn't have a better education than that uh, for it what was. you do now. And and even at the time, to be honest, even at the time, I was aware that you know you'd have these days where the the markets would just just do stuff that that the textbooks say is impossible. I mean, basis would widen out by thirty bips mortgage treasuries and then whip back in by 20 basis points. And then one buyer or one seller could completely move the market. And then there would be actual ARB opportunities in the screen where you could take delivery because Bear Stearns was dumping all their cash securities. And so you, if you could take cash securities and hedge it with TBAs, there was free carry, which is a straight ARB. Um, they're the same, they're the same security, one's a future and one's a cash, but, but no one had balance sheet because all the firms were trying to dump securities off their balance sheet. Uh, just to raise cash. So it was like, you're sitting there and you're kind of like, this is not meant to ever happen. So I remember being both terrified, um, thinking, you know, the global financial system was going to collapse. Capitalism was going to end. It was going to be, you know, canned goods and bows and arrows hiding out in our basement. And that was, I actually think that was a, a pretty real possibility. But then I would try and take a moment and say, remember everything that's happening. Like I have like notebooks with notes of some of the stuff I saw just to try. Cause I knew that this was a once in a hundred year event. And so you're sitting here with a front row seat to try and learn as much as you can about it. Um, but that was, it was not the type of lesson that I would want to go through ever again. Right. Well, and actually that, that leads into my next question, which is really, you know, jumping into the last year with COVID. So having been through 07, 08, you know, when, what, what we were faced with in, in 2020, uh, you know, 
at least gave you a background for, for what this looks like. And, and my specific question is, um, you know, the structure, uh, the SFA recently released its annual report for 2020. And one of the things it mentioned was the way the association acted to help restore liquidity and capital flow through the capital markets. And I would love for you to walk us through a little bit of what that looked like, because there were some weeks there in, in the spring that also were pretty scary. Yeah, it, it's true. You know, I I will get myself a little bit in trouble by saying this, um, and I know that some of my members feel a little bit differently. So I'm going to try and qualify it as best I can. It it was scary. Um, it was scary because we all didn't know. You know, start going back to March of of last year, we didn't know what this was that was coming at us, and and the idea that we're going to close down the economy was just so baffling. You were kind of like, I don't. That can't be right. There's no chance. And I'm reading these like studies that are saying. No, no, we'll all have to go into lockdown for three months and then you can, it looks like you can come out, you know, for a couple of months and then we'll go back into lockdown again. And I'm like, what does that mean? It does, doesn't make any sense. So, so it was scary on that regard. I never personally, it, it never set off inside of me I, the same sort of, you know, chemicals of fear that 08 did. And it could, it could be because I was a little bit older um, so maybe I had a little bit more experience, whereas, you know, when 08 happened, I was, um, 29 years old and, you know, sitting on a trading desk trying to figure this thing out. So that's possible, but you know, the financial system was, a, is just in a stronger position. I mean, um, it was super, super capitalized this time around. It wasn't a leverage bubble. Um, leverage bubbles are particularly scary. And I think we got the impression early on that, there was a lot that we're gonna have to wade through, but that there was a real commitment on the part of policymakers to deal with it and to deal with it aggressively. So there, it, it wasn't it wasn't such a complex situation where in 08, everybody knew they needed to save the financial system, but there was also a lot of anger at the financial system, justified anger at the financial system. And that was that caused this push-pull in policymaking. Um, and this one wasn't that way. So I, I didn't, I knew that we needed to get the emergency lending facilities back up. Um, at the Fed, and I knew that Congress needed to, you know, flood the system with money. Um, but I just felt like it was going to happen. Whereas I think in 08, there was a real, there was a long time where it didn't feel like any of that was going to happen. And and so this one was a little bit different on that front. The other thing that for sure helped um, to your specific question is that the TALF lending facility had been built in 08 and 09. And the team who had done that, which is brilliant, just a brilliant group of folks that I had the opportunity to work with in other roles in DC. Um, they knew how to dust it off, you know, pull that playbook out and get it up and running. And so um, it happened a little, a, a lot more quickly in this time around and was operationalized quite quickly. And the market had some sense of what it was going to be. And then, and QE wasn't such a novel concept. It was just called monetary policy now, whereas in 08, it was, it was bizarre. So, um, you know, it was bizarre to a lot of people, I should say. Um, so it didn't feel, it didn't feel as bad. But it, but that's because the response was very swift, and I think the politics were a lot easier this time because it was a virus to blame. It wasn't, you know, a self-inflicted situation. Well, and, and to your point, I mean, I think people like you who had already been through a 708, you had more tools at your disposal. You already, you know, you, you know what that looked like, QE, all that monetary policy like you're talking about. So great on that. This time there was money on the sideline. You knew it. That You knew banks had cash. You knew... Uh, the Fed had a balance sheet and was not afraid to use it. You knew that Congress was willing to spend. And and in 08, I, it, that wasn't the impression. You know, it, like banks were undercapitalized and they were facing, you know, cap, capital withdrawals and they were facing um, uh, balance sheet insolvency, cash flow insolvency. So it, it just felt different a little bit to me. 
Oh, absolutely. You know, over the last year, one of the things we saw a lot, a lot of activity to prepare for the end of LIBOR. Um, would love to know where we are in that process. You know, the end of this year is supposed to be the end of LIBOR. Where, where are we transitioning? I know you guys you know, have been working on that as well. Yeah. So LIBOR is going away. It looks like we have a little bit more time. You know, they're willing to extend it for a couple of years, I think to 23 for some reporting. But um, I, I think if you take a step back, honestly, I, I think we we overcorrected on this one. I mean, I I, I under I fully understand the scandal, and I understand and people have gone to jail and should have gone to jail, and fines need to be imposed, and there certainly you know needs to be a regulatory process to make sure that bids actually match. You know, you 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 know the submissions for your overnight borrowing actually match transactions or can be validated. Um, I, I I think we overcorrected by making this thing go away entirely, uh, but it, it it sort of feels like. Like there's no putting that toothpaste back in the can. That the decision's been made, and here we go. So, so okay. Well, you know, the Fed has done. I think, and market participants collectively have done a reasonably good job of building this new SOFR um, product and building some liquidity and futures and stuff. That that's an ongoing process, but we know it's happening. So, I, I think that for new contracts. Um, and even for recently issued contracts that are going to reference SOFR, you know, there could be, there's going to be bumps and there'll be some hiccups and there'll be some like spread weirdness that happens, uh, but there's a lot, a lot of eyes on it. So this should get smoothed out quickly. Um, so we made a lot of progress on replacing LIBOR with this, you know, Fed overnight funding rate, plus there'll be some spread adjustments um, to kind of make it look like LIBOR. Where there's work still to be done and um, we're working pretty aggressively on the Hill on this one is, Old contracts where the interest rate is based on LIBOR and there isn't fallback language that says if LIBOR goes away, what's the replacement rate? And there, there are you know hundreds of millions of dollars in these contracts across all asset classes. Um, you know, up until very recently, I don't think the world thought LIBOR was going away. No one contemplated the end of that, and so contracts weren't made with, you know, based on LIBOR plus a spread um, with a, oh, by the way, if LIBOR ever goes away, you'll switch to this because there was just no idea that that would ever happen. And so um, what we're probably, what we, we're setting ourselves up for, I think, in LIBOR is um, you're going to have winners and losers on both sides of a transaction when you have to make a, a subjective decision about what you're switching to, um, you know, when, uh, when LIBOR is not reported and you have a contract that's based on LIBOR without a fallback. Uh, language, you know, that's, that's specified in the contract, someone's going to have to make the calls to what the new rate is going to be. And no matter what that is, someone's going to feel like it's too high or someone's going to feel like it's too low. And so it really does set up a lot of risk of just endless litigation um, and confusion on the part of consumers um, and frustration on the part of investors who are investing, you know, on 401ks and pension plans. Um, and those are the two sides of the of, of a transaction. So you've got the bar consumer who doesn't want to get hosed, of course, and put into a rate that's too high. On the other hand, though, that you have an investor that's a fiduciary to pension funds and four hundred one k plans and retirement funds, they they're not willing to just give away spread. I mean, they can't do that. They have fiduciary responsibilities to their customers, and these are insurance companies and, and well, you know, heavily regulated large institutional investors. So it really is setting up for. Um, not a good environment and 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 it can be solved with legislation that creates a safe harbor for those contracts um that just says if you if you migrate to you know sofa plus a spread determined by 
and pick the group. It can be a Federal Reserve group or it can be a consortium of industry folks who are on the ARC or a combination of the two, you know, then that, then that fulfills the contract. And then you just end this, this risk of endless litigation. Um, and so we're hopeful that we can get that safe harbor um, through. Otherwise, it, it, it's going to get ugly between consumers and investors, some of whom are the same person because, you know, the borrower may have their money in a 401k. So it, it's just it's a very strange dynamic that we're building here. Do you feel like um, you're, you're finding consensus on the Hill? I mean, do you feel like there's a good chance of that coming through? Or I once heard a saying that said, finding an affordable apartment in New York is technically impossible, yet every once in a while it happens. I think the same is true of passing legislation. It's really impossible <laughs> to pass legislation. Right. But every once in a while, somehow the stars um, coalesce and it, and, it, and it does. And I worked you know, as a Senate staffer for four years, and I can attest that it's hard to pass legislation. It, it's very strange how, um, how much human emotion plays into it and the and, and party politics can play into it. And, not, you know, there's a lot of issues that are technical and the lack of understanding can get in the way of it. So this one's got all of that stuff. It's got technical issues. It's got, it's got Wall Street related things. It's got consumer groups there. Um, so it, it, it's not, nothing is easy when it comes to passing legislation. There are a couple of bills that have been introduced by Democrats um, and they're pretty well written in our view. And we, we think that they take into account a lot of the considerations. Um, and, and so what ends up happening is um, oftentimes, you know, if you're in the other party and someone brings to you an idea, you don't like it just because it's not, you know, necessarily your idea. So it, it's just really, it's really micro, micro, micro politics that I think could to, could be at play here. Um, that isn't to say that, you know, the bill, that there are bills that are perfect and that we shouldn't have a discussion around it. I just, it, it's kind of strange that um, you have something that does align interests in a lot of different people in our market. And then um, suddenly people go to their sides and retreat. And so, um it feels like there's appetite on the Democrat side to advance it. Um, and it feels at the moment like the appetite is to willing to advance a safe harbor bill that doesn't become, you know, a messaging bill for other things in, in the market. If that changes, then we're in real trouble. Um, I think on the Republican side, you know, um, Senator Toomey is is a former swaps trader and understands this stuff. And you talk to him and he, you know, he he really you know, knows that he understands this stuff. So I, he could be an ally, um, I think, in that. And we certainly uh, brought it to his attention. They, there's a lot that they're doing to get that the banking committee set up. So um, we're hopeful that we can build consensus. But like I said, passing legislation is a really, really arduous task. And we're working with Congress right now. That, that's God's work right there. <laughs> that's just on that pay. Well, you know, let's talk about ESG uh, initiatives. I am excited about this. You know, I feel like this is an area where maybe we're really reaching a tipping point, especially if you look at Fannie Mae issuing single family green MBS. Um, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd love to get your, your uh, view on this. You know, where, where do you see this growing? Listen, I've never seen a dynamic take over the market as quickly as something like ESG has just totally dominates all conversations right now. And, um, you know, I think in Europe, a lot of the movement on that was was regulatory driven, you know, so desire on the part of uh, European regulators to make sure that assets um, under management considered sustainability factors um, in the U.S., um, for the most part, it's being driven by investor preferences. And so you have Gen X and millennial investors, and even my generation, you know, or Gen Y, I should say, um, who, who, who don't want to invest in things that they don't think are sustainable for the world. I think, I, you know, you finally have 
um, an awakening where people realize that 7 billion people sharing this planet means we all have to be conscious of how we're going to do that, or we're all going to pay an egregious price. And this is why you see, you know, hundred year storms happening every five and 10 years, because it's just, you know, we're not thinking about that stuff. So there's, this is a market driven demand. Um, and the numbers are staggering. Tens of trillions of dollars of investments are now seeking, you know, um, sustainable assets, sustainable projects. They want to be able to say that these things are sustainable. And so the tipping point, we've, we're already over the tipping point in terms of demand. What needs to happen next, and I think is going to happen over the next couple of years, and I think SFA is going to play a big role in this, is we need some baseline set of standards for what constitutes sustainable. Or even more basic than that, what type of reporting needs to be out there so that you can determine for yourself what if this is sustainable. So it's as simple as right now, something along the lines of 70% of investments that are that claim to be in sustainable assets. Um, the only thing they'll tell you about those assets is that the asset manager quote considers sustainability when making investment decisions. So that's not really that's not really as robust as we need it to be. And I think that, you know, the term greenwashing is something that is out there. And and I think that the market wants to figure this out. Otherwise, this opportunity will p- pass us by because then people will become skeptical on the whole thing. And um, so we need to figure that out. So I, I think that there's going to be clearly a regulatory push to, to have some minimum baseline standards. But I think the industry wants to do it too. And so um, there are multiple factors. I, I don't think it would be... I don't want to be involved as a trade association necessarily in determining, um, you know, what score an ES and G a certain thing should get. That that's probably not. This wouldn't be in in the convening, you know, space. But to get everybody together and say, as we make a decision about whether or not this thing can fit an ESG fund, or we'd be willing to invest in it. Um, what type of information does it make sense to have? And then gather everybody to commit to, to delivering this information on a regular basis in some form so that the market can um, actually price the stuff with the with the data and analytics that it needs. And so that's a project that um, we are in, involved in. And every time we get the industry together for a symposium or a, a virtual conference to talk about this, it's like massively oversubscribed you know, can't get enough people in. So the demand to figure this thing out is, is there. So we have to figure out what data needs to be delivered, what, what, what analytics are needed. And then people need to start talking about um, how they're going to, you know, use transparency to show how they look at sustainability factors and making investment decisions. And I'm sure there's going to be a regulatory push to build some baseline standards, kind of like, I, I think the analogy is sort of like, you know, to call something organic food, you have to have a certain meet a certain level of you know criteria. I I, I think that's going to be something like that in ESG. That's an oversimplified analogy, but I've been kind of trying it out. So I think all of the above is going to happen over the next year. So it's a really interesting time. And if we do it right, um, then maybe we do have a shot at you know sharing this planet safely, but while also productively growing the economy. Yeah, I, I love your insight on that. Super interesting. It is interesting that there's the, the demand from the investor side. Um, and, uh, you know, just how to build it, how to make it, I didn't realize that that's all that it needed to be considered a sustainable, you know, fund or whatever is that they consider sustainability options. It's like, well, that seems really nebulous. And and it's not, that's not to everyone, but what, what, what happens is you start to read, if you just Google, you know, research reports, like, you know, how much is in sustainable assets, you'll get these numbers that are just eye-popping. So I just, there was one report that said 74 trillion US domiciled assets are in sustainable investment. 
I'm like 74 trillion. Holy Maloney. What are those? And then you start to dig down and you realize there's no reporting on what those are. And so it's like, okay, well, yeah, we probably need a little more transparency on what this means. Love that. And, and that leads right into my next question, because you talked there about setting standards. And uh, so, so you recently wrote a piece for Housing Wire on the CFPB's ATR rule changes, and you advocated for an industry standard setting organization. Um, you know, SFA pledged to work to help build this with the first step of kind of working to build data driven industry consensus. So I, I would love you to talk in some detail about how this would be a better alternative, why you feel like this is the future. Yeah. So you know, the debate over where to set this safe harbor from the ATR rule, which, you know, we, you mean a qualified mortgage, that, that has different connotations. So, um, you know, it's worth remembering that I think the original drafters of the ATR rule um, had in mind that um, you would have to demonstrate this ability to repay using a series of factors. Um, and if you couldn't, or if, you know, when there was a foreclosure situation, the borrower could say, you didn't consider these factors, you made me a loan just based on the collateral value, you know, the lender wouldn't be able to foreclose on the house. That was the original intent. And then it evolved to say, well, there should be some baseline set of standards where if you meet those, you do get a safe harbor so that you know right out of the bat, out of the gate, um, you've met all the criteria. Okay, sensible enough. And then, so that gave rise to this QM. But in, in the years past, we haven't really had a very healthy conversation around what that safe harbor is meant to be. And um, so it just punted to the GSEs, you know, anything that their AUS approves or anything that FHA approves is automatically a safe harbor. And then the rest was subject to Appendix Q, which was the original attempt at writing income and documentation standards for, for what constitutes I and the DTI ratio. And I think that it was pretty, pretty how do I put it? it? You know, it, it really would only work for very standard traditional borrowers with lots of W-2 and lots of, um, you know, basic income type of verification. So gig economy workers would be left out, um, you know, certain demogra demographics that aren't white communities with cookie cutter type homes, easy to appraise, don't really meet that standard. And so um, it's unclear whether that was really the intent. Um, so we have some perverse, you know, unintended consequences here. So, so the way we're looking at this um, is that the CFPB can set the safe harbor with a variety of tools. Um, it can use something like this APOR plus a spread. It can use other market-based metrics. It can use its own model or, or whatnot and set that safe harbor. But in all of them, literally all of them, there is still a requirement to consider document and verify income. And there isn't the ability, in our view, at, at the, the Bureau to um, define exactly what document, consider, and verify mean. So exactly what income verification is required um, and to do that in a way that is both safe and, 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 and tethered to the intent of the ATR rule, um, but also dynamic enough that gig economy workers and shifting demographics in our society allow uh, black and brown communities to have access to home ownership in a safe and protected way. Um, so I, I don't think a few, a few people inside of one agency can write that perfect rule. I think that's too much of a task for anybody. It's, it's a complete Sisyphean task. So what we have as a concept is that if you gather the industry and you make sure that it's the whole industry, so not just the originators and not just the originators and the issues of bond, issuers of bonds, but the originators, the bond issuers and the bond investors who have an interest in making sure that these loans you know, do meet ATR standard, 
Um, and you get come together and we start a conversation around what type of documentation standards constitute good faith determination to consider document and verify. Um, then we have a real shot at something producing something that could be a little bit more dynamic in nature. And so um, it could work as simply as this. Uh, and this is what we're building. You could have a group that sort of constitutes, call it a board, but it's really sort of a, a, an oversight commission that would be rep, that would have diverse membership, banks, non-banks, servicers, and lots of investors, PLS investors, um, whole loan investors, the gamut. And that group could say, well, let's, let's pose some questions. Let's start asking like, what type of questions do we need? So for example, how many months of bank statement lending do you need in order to show that it performs similar to a W-2 borrower? We don't know. Is it one, six, 12? Like, wh what's the answer to that question? So this, our vision is that that set of, you know, sort of, we'd have a diverse set of folks that would constitute this board that would ask these questions. And then we're building the data and analytics to then answer those questions and back it up with data. So we can say, it looks like based on this historical period, and then this is hypothetical, six to nine months of, um, of uh, bank statements tend to perform similar to W-2 in these industries. That could be an answer. So then you're just putting that out there. And if we could, and, and if everybody agrees, then, you know, the investors have a little bit more certainty that they're investing in a loan that's a legal loan. Um, the issuers know that they can defend that as having made a good faith determination to document to consider document and verify these standards and we can back it up with data data that the entire industry the whole ecosystem where there's tension that's naturally built in because you have people on different sides of a trade um can help sort of answer these questions so this wouldn't be anytime soon in my mind you know blessed with like the ability to deem something as a QM or in the safe harbor just because this organization did it, that, that, that could be a dream down the road. There would be a lot of governance, you know, that would need to, to be built with, in, with, in conjunction with regulators to do that. That isn't really what we're targeting. What we're targeting is, that's what we call it a, a standard setting organization instead of a self-regulatory organization. If you have standard setting organization, we're just going to build some self-governance for the, for this, the non-agency market um, that we'll all live by. Regulators are going to come and go. They're going to change the way they look at these things. Sometimes they make the safe harbor tight. Sometimes they maybe make the safe harbor wide. That, you know, the, that, that's going to be dependent on, um, you know, who's in charge at the time. But there's nothing that says you should. I think this industry is going to be here for a very long time. It wants to be here for a very long time. And it wants to both make loans in a safe manner, but also figure out how to make sure that um, non-standard borrowers have access to, to home ownership too, and um, and do it in a way that doesn't run afoul of the intent or the letter of the ATR rules. And so there's there's no downside to having an industry consortium come together and have this conversation. There's literally no downside. I mean, even if we're going to have debates and opinions that differ and maybe um, challenges getting consensus now and then, then that's information too. I mean, that's knowledge that all the participants have. They know that we can't come to agreement on this or that or the other, but it, it's, it's really a, about figuring out what type of um, income and verification standards make sense and how do you back that up with data? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of enthusiasm for it. Um, and we think it's going to be a helpful sort of additive piece to the discussion. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, you know, what kind of response have you gotten to that and, and are people excited about it, you know, going forward with that. Yes. I, you know, it, um, once you explain that this isn't, no one's asking, no one's setting up a, a, a contract where we'd be asking for the authority to regulate 
entities. That's not, this isn't another, you know, authoritarian institution. This is a data sharing discussion institution where we look to achieve consensus and we don't have consensus on something, we won't publish it. Um, and if we do have consensus on something, we can publish it. We, you know, originators and investors can choose how they want to use it. Some of them may rely heavily on it. Some of them may, it's one piece of, you know, verification and a lot of other pieces of verification that they would probably need. That's probably where this would go. And maybe, you know, um, the occasional amicus brief could come out of this group down the road if needed. Um, once you start to put it that way, um, then the issuers and the originators get really excited about it. When you say the investors, we can give some degree of certainty as to what a legal loan is. So they, because the investors just kind of say to us repeatedly, we can do credit analysis and we can do prepayment analysis, but I can't buy something and then just find out that it was illegal because there was a standard that we didn't know existed. Um, or, you know, or what looked reasonable to us isn't reasonable to somebody else or, or whatnot. So if we all kind of build um, an organization that can define reasonableness um, and reasonableness standards on these things, it should mitigate some of that risk. And then now you now you're starting to get in the world where you know issuers and investors are, are also not going to have to be pointing the finger at one another in the event that a loan goes delinquent because maybe we all were had we all were at the table when we figured out that this standard was acceptable. So um, it it does it 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 could build for a little bit more of a productive dialogue. And so that has been very warmly received with, with a lot of sort of enthusiasm. Um, so now we just got to deliver. So we're working on uh, cost, staff, data, um, organizational structure, who should be on it, et cetera. And, that, and all that is going to be coming together in the next couple of months. That's exciting. We'll be we'll be watching that. Keep us yeah. keep us uh, apprised of how that goes. Uh, you know that one of the things uh, that ATR touches on and 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 the debt to income ratio and all of that is something that we've we've you know obviously over the last year been talking a lot about you know reaching those uh, non standard borrowers and especially in communities of color um, where some of the um, the debt to income ratio the way that that's you know the way that student loan is are, are, is calculated into that and then the ability to repay and and that kind of leads into our next question which is really you know, um, SFA has talked about championing diversity, equity, and inclusion in the industry. So, you know, what does that look like for you guys over the last year? And what does that look like going forward? Well, so look, I can bring this question almost back to my first question. So, or the very first question you asked me when I first got into the industry and we were talking about countrywide. Um, countrywide was not unique in that most decisions were made by white men. And the trading desk was mostly white men. And a lot of the folks had very similar backgrounds and certainly didn't have visibility into the communities that were getting loans that they should not have been getting under the terms that they were getting. Okay. Um, and so I can trace, I feel as though there, you know, there are many factors that contributed to the financial crisis, but one of them has got to be the group think of lack of diversity in C-suites and in boardrooms on trading desks where capital is actually allocated. And um, if part of, if my motivation in life, which which very much is trying to figure out how to harness the good and avoid the dangers of relying of, of you know bringing capital markets to bear to, to the allocation of of capital, it doesn't make any sense that that um everybody you'd have a group of people that all look and sound the same, you know, recruiting from each other's schools and 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 whatnot to 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 build that type of uh, a capital market system. You're not going to be able to serve the real economy effectively. You're not going to be able to, you, you're probably going to careen from crisis to crisis. You're certainly not going to do a, a very good job at um, keeping up with demographic changes that the country has right now. 
so for me, it's, and for a lot of folks, okay, I'm not, I'm not a trailblazer on this. This is, I'm representing the views of many people. You know, the business case here is, is stark and it's, and it's, and it's, and it's obvious. You layer on top of that, um, the moral and ethical imperative that we have to, to not surround ourselves just with people, um, who, you know, who, rec who, who we recognize as being exactly like us, because that's just a very limited way to go through life. And then the enjoyment of surrounding yourself with people with different backgrounds, different experiences, and their ability to challenge your thinking and the fun that this brings. Um, so you've got, you've got this whole host of reasons to say diversifying is no, is not charitable work. It's good forever. It's, it's enjoyable work. It's fun work. It makes us smarter. It makes us better. It challenges our thinking and it's going to make our financial system stronger. So, so I, I believe that strongly. And, and, but again, I'm, I'm not alone on that, that that's, I'm representing a view that I think has become increasingly the norm. And so we've got a lot of pent up energy. There's a lot of energy to do, to, 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 to do meaningful work in this. And so our theory is, of the case is that you know, there, there are multiple prongs that we need to do. So, you know, it, 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 there are barriers to entry into financial services, of course, for, for students of color and uh, people of color coming out, even um, if, you know, we're looking at a lot of data that, su that suggests that even if recruitment classes are very diverse, um, the mentorship abilities and the ability to sort of navigate what feels like probably a very white world with all kinds of microaggressions that are, people don't even know that that are happening and an aware lack of awareness around that um that that takes a toll i mean it it takes a real toll on on people of color uh women in these industries both you know all, all of that gets gets hit pretty hard and so even if you build recruiting classes which we're trying to do um we're reaching out to hbcus and we're building some um scholarships and internship programs with the university of district of columbia uh, we're really excited about getting that thing off the ground but it's not doesn't just stop there you need to make sure that um you showcase that uh the industry wants to be diverse and takes it seriously and we're going to give speaking slots to people of color and to women and you know we're going to make sure that their voices are very are, are promoted and heard at our vegas conference last year we had 12 keynotes none of them were white males so you know we're kind of committed to doing that um to just making sure that we put up this sign that says you're welcome here not only are you welcome here we need you here okay so so please come help us be better and here's networks of you know of mentorship here's networks of opportunities um like let's all be committed to this because it's existential for our industry and so um we're building we've got a couple work streams in our our uh, DEI initiative we've got a network of networks thing where we're going to convene sort of best practices from a lot of uh, companies that are going, we got, we have a scholarship fund. We've got, um, money allocated to make sure that we have keynotes who, who are diverse at all of our events. Um, we're pushing in op-eds and editorials. So we're kind of coming at it all angles, but for me, success is going to be that when the industry does gather at our events, which we do a few times a year, when we look at the audience, we want to look at an audience of leaders in the industry that looks a little bit like America, right. That looks like cross section of our country, not, looks like a cross-section of Connecticut or whatever. Uh, you know, no offense to Connecticut. It's a lovely place. I, you, know, you, just, you, you know, like right. that, that, that's what we're going for here. No, I, I love that. And I think that, um, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, the reason we asked that first question, how did you get in, into the industry is it's not like 10-year-olds are like, I want to be a, 
you know, I want to be in you know, finance, but especially maybe no one is like, I want to be in structured finance. I want to be in asset classes. I want, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's even one step beyond say banking or whatever, as far as like awareness and, and, and the path to get there. And so it's really encouraging and exciting to think about um, how you're building those recruiting classes and really going after it. No, you, no, it's, you're exactly right because it's, it's, it's all about the tributaries in, into the river. So yes, you could say, I like, I like the idea of finance and markets and I'm, you know, a kid in, in college and I like CNBC and Bloomberg and I read the wall street journal, but you don't know at that. Most kids don't know the difference between investment banking, bond trading sales. And then within that, you don't know, there's, there's liquid rates trading, there's structured products trading. There's all, you know, these different things that you, you're only going to learn through experience. And you're oftentimes only going to get le- learn if someone taps you on the shoulder and says, why not try this? I like, we're, we're adding in this department and here's what's fun about this particular asset class. Um, and so, yeah, in, in, it, it's those moments where it's kind of like, well, learn to be conscious about who you're going to tap. Um, be aware of that and make sure that when you get your team and you assembled and you look around, it should be a team that's going to challenge your thinking, not a team that's just going to constantly affirm your thinking. And if we do that, I think we have a shot. Love it. And again, uh, keep us up to date on that because that's oh, something yeah. that we're really focusing on. And, and it's going to, that's going to change things. It's going to fundamentally change things when the people at the table, when people making these decisions, um, you know, don't, don't all look, all look the same. And I know you guys have, have been doing this for a while, but I'm just saying like, I, I just industry-wide in any part of our industry, this is what's going to change it. Agree. Totally agree. Yeah. I exciting. Well, for our last question, there are no softball questions in this Uh-oh. interview. So I'm going to talk about, uh, let's talk about GSE reform. Huh. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you've really, SFA has really called for an orderly transition in any GSE exit uh, from conservatorship. Um, and I, I just want to, you know, where are we now? So, so things got a little bit crazy um, in the last months of the Trump administration when things seemed to be um, hurried along there. Um, where are we now at, with a Biden administration? What is even the appetite uh, for GSE reform? You know, can you give us any update on that? Oh man, I have I, I have to admit, sir, I have such a love hate relationship with this issue. Um, on the one hand, the work that I got to do in Senator Corker's office, working with Senator Warner and Senator Crapo, and the coalition that we built in 2013 um, around legislation to try and you know, say we can move past dependence on these companies while also leveraging and, and keeping the things that they do well, and we'll add certainty and intellectual honesty toward the government's role in the mortgage-backed security while also having resolution mechanisms that can be credible for the institutions and a capital regime that should work, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, we tried to look at, how, you know, is there, is there um, what's the right affordable housing regime, meaning what are the right mandates for the companies is direct, fu- how, how does direct funding uh, for, for organizations like housing trust fund, capital magnet fund, how does that relate with goals and duty to serve? Are they, how are they complementary? How are they not? And in any event, I loved that year. I have the scars, emotional and physical scars <laughs> from, from that year. Um, I never worked I, I, you know, it was, it really was, especially in the acute phases in the spring of 2014, really worked working 18 hour days, seven days a week. I mean, we were in the office till midnight and people would just be like, we had to go home and get a little bit of sleep and then back and back at seven. So there, there, there was a real push and it was a very, it was a very um, fun 
thing. And I, and I think the thing that was most proud of was that we checked a lot of ideology at the door. There was a lot of attempts um, to sit across the table from somebody who had different concerns from you or different perspective than you and say, okay, well, how do we address your concern? Well, keeping in my mind concern and not forgetting we have a coalition of people who already support this. So it's this game of add support without losing support. And how do you balance that? And it was a fascinating, fascinating look at the legislative process and the, and the, and the, and the trading process there and the listening to one another process. And it was never partisan. I mean, it was, it was always a bipartisan thing. Okay. So that was a very fulfilling moment in my life and time in my life. And, um, uh, it didn't pass into law. Um, at least, you know, didn't pass into law then. And, and I got the opportunity to work with Ed DeMarco when I was at the Milken Institute to say, okay, that thing didn't pass, but like, how could you simple, is there a way to simplify it and, and do something similar where you keep all of the um, objectives that you had there, but do it in a way that we can understand that the transition would work. And so we thought maybe we'd use the Ginny May security, et cetera. Okay. So that was also an enjoyable thing. At this point, the discussion around like wholesale structural revamping is purely an intellectual exercise. At, at the time, it really, in 2013, 2014, it was not. I mean, we really were talking about something meaningful. Now, I'm not saying we had, we hit the bullseye on every issue. We certainly didn't, but we didn't think that we had it at the time either. I mean, it was this iterative process. The thing was constantly getting better and it was sort of evolving. Um, you just feel that that energy doesn't exist. And so um, I've moved on and I encourage others to move on. And so when we talk about GSE reform, um, it, we really have to shift, I think, at this I think it makes sense for us to shift what that means. Okay. So it, 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 I don't think it just means getting them out of conservatorship to me. That isn't reform. In fact, I think that's like the opposite. It could be going back to an intellectually dishonest structure that we had before the financial crisis that did get us into some trouble that did cause some really awkward meetings between our then treasury secretary Paulson and the Chinese and the and Japanese and those investors. And I got to know all those investors when I was running Ginny. And I don't think we should recreate that. So I don't think GSE reform means tear the whole, you know, like rebuild a system with some complexities the way we had been doing um, with legislation in 13, 14. I also reject this idea that reform just means getting them out of conservatorship with a bit more capital. That's not reform either. Um, so I think the interesting conversation is, um, you know, how do we, how do we um, build a housing policy that's equitable and fair? Um, how do we encourage the use of sustainable environmental factors in lending? Um, how do we, you know, disseminate information and data so that everybody can kind of build and grow from it? Um, you know, how do you how do you keep the GSEs continuing to provide utility functions that only they can provide because they're the ones with the charter, um, but in a way that they don't take you know the, you know it's not like they're arbing the system um, by doing it. So it, it's it's more. It's more about regulation and regulating them well and providing strict, you know, good oversight and having a good conversation. So to me, reform is now a different thing. I think we just need to reform the way we look at management of the GSEs. And so I'm an advocate of an FHFA that um, that provides, you know, sound regulatory oversight, asks tough questions 
um, make sure that business lines are being respected, but also is informed about the, what these things do. I'm an advocate of a White House that understands the value that they can provide to the economy and maybe nudges them to do more in certain spaces while not being reckless. And I'm an advocate for Congress that takes seriously its oversight responsibility um, and does so with a base of you know solid knowledge so that they understand not only the technicals, but also you know the social impact. But um, that to me is is what constitutes you know good governance and that's really what i'd rather build since this idea of reform isn't really there um and so the the term's a little bit maybe been hijacked um so i don't use it really anymore but like i said i i think that um you know my con my my journey on that one the things that were fulfilling to me is people a lot of people around me got a lot smarter on how this stuff works um I got smarter on how a lot of things work. Uh, you know, we produced a bipartisan set of, of options that were by no means perfect. And we knew they had more work to go, but it was an enjoyable process. And I think, you know, friends were made amongst elected officials and staff that had last a lifetime. And um, yeah, I mean, and now we are where we are and, and that's okay. I just think uh, if we can have informed sound oversight and governance, then we'll be all right in that space. Love that. And that is a perfect way to, to end informed sound government. Let, we're all for that. Let's all have that yeah. going forward. Journey. It's a journey of a lifetime, turns out. I, I so appreciate you sharing your insights on all these uh, different, th these are really some of the most compelling things going on in our industry right now. So really um, appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. It was a, a great interview. So thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thanks for having me. Had a great time and um, yeah, happy to do it anytime. Well, thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please don't forget to give us feedback and rate us on iTunes. Also, make sure to check out Housing Wire's daily podcast, Housing Wire Daily, which is a wrap of Housing Wire's hottest stories and now available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. And we'll see you next week.